Hello, everyone. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for coming for the session. Um, so I hope everyone of you is having a great conference. You have a good day. And uh, you were excited about the announcements that were made today morning. We were certainly excited about it. So uh, a lot of good things. Um, so today's session, this session is about uh, modernizing infrastructure uh, with AWS, how Verizon is modernizing their enterprise infrastructure with AWS. My name is Puneet Agrawal. I'm a principal solutions architect with AWS. Um, I've been with AWS for around three and a half years, and during this time, I've had privilege of working with Verizon as a customer and a bunch of other enterprise customers as well. So when I started three and a half years ago, uh, I thought that most customers would use cloud and AWS, you know, more or less the same way. You know, everybody has application, you want compute, you want databases, you want storage, how different could it be? Uh, but when I started working with customers with deep integration with AWS, when they started bringing their uh, architectures to AWS, I realized that not all customers are same, right? Everybody is different. Um, so for example, a financial company in a, in a startup space is completely different than a media company, right? And, uh, and a medium-sized consumer good company is very different than a telco like Verizon. Uh, so that's a big difference. The second difference is on scale, right? So if you are a 500 developer company or even a 1,000 developer company, the amount of automation you do when you move to AWS to get the cloud benefits, uh, that's very different than the amount of automation you want to do when you have thousands and thousands of developers, as it is in case of Horizon. The third difference, uh, which will affect uh, how you migrate to cloud and how you integrate to the cloud is about where you are in your IT modernization journey. Uh, some companies have adopted DevOps before they started adopting cloud, as in case of Verizon. Uh, while other companies we see, they are still trying to come out of uh, manual operations mode. So all these differences are going to affect how quickly you can adopt AWS and how quickly you can start getting some of the cloud benefits. Uh, so as new customers or even existing customers, you might be thinking, well, you know, how do we, how, how do we solve for it? How do we get these learnings? Uh, one of the best ways to do that is to hear from companies who have done this before, who have spent a couple of years, uh, multiple meetings, a lot of deliberations around some of the key enterprise infrastructure architecture issues and how they have solved for those issues uh, on AWS. And that's why today we have Ashad and Chitra uh, from Verizon to tell you about their journey to the cloud, how they solved for their unique challenges when they were trying to build their enterprise architecture on top of AWS. Uh, with that, I'll invite uh, Ashad and Chitra to the stage. Thank you. Thanks, Puneet. Hi, my name is Ashad Aziz. I'm a senior manager in Verizon IT. Um, been with the company for about 15 years. Um, I'm part of the team involved with heavily with cloud engineering, governance, security, and also I de deal with applications moving to the cloud. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Prakash. I'm a director at IT Cloud and uh, Platform Services Engineering um, at Verizon. And uh, in that role, I have responsibility for managing our um, on-premise x86 infrastructure, both uh, private cloud and the virtual infrastructure, as well as the uh, public cloud readiness and day two operations activities uh, uh, that we have responsibility for. So um, 
let me tell you a little bit about Verizon. I believe most of you know Verizon already. You, you probably already have a cell phone or are using Fios or many of our capabilities today. Uh, just a few key highlights about Verizon. We are a for, uh, number 14 in the 14, Fortune 500 company. Um, we uh, are uh, leaders in, when it comes to the wireless network and uh, we have a, the largest uh, all fiber network uh, for Fios and also provide a global IP network that is used by uh, several, 99% of the Fortune 500 companies. Uh, let me give you a little bit of a background on this session and why we thought this was important to share this session with the audience. We have a large IT organization. We have thousands of developers, and these developers are continually de uh, delivering code, developing code, releasing code, and onto thousands of instances, both on our on-prem data centers and now in AWS. So we already had several tools, processes, and automation in place that we were leveraging within our IT data centers. So when we uh, started talking about going into AWS, we wanted to make sure we were able to leverage some of those capabilities to jumpstart our AWS journey. So we had to solve for some of those complexities of utilizing these internal solutions and integrating them with the AWS services that are available out there. Um, we also had to address security uh, considerations, compliance and governance requirements, because we are now running in a public cloud. And then we also had to think about, uh, rethink the operating model, right? How do we need to change the operating model for operating workloads both in the data centers as well as in the public cloud? And the biggest thing, as uh, Puneet mentioned, is about scale. Because we had to do all this at scale, so we had to focus heavily on automation to get to that point. So um, we're going to cover some of the key areas that we focused on. There were several. Um, in this agenda, we're going to focus on our initial cloud journey, how we started and where we are today. Um, Arshad's going to cover the shared services configuration and the security enforcement topics. Um, then I'll come back and cover the deployment automation and the governance and mo monitoring topic. Then Arshad will take it away, wrapping it up with the database um, topic, all right? So um, let me talk a little bit about our cloud journey. Uh, we started our journey back in December of 2015. Um, again, the need for enabling the developers to enhance their developer experience to also and, you know, enhance speed and agility and time to value, that was the biggest focus when we started migrating workloads into AWS. We started with a sandbox for experimentation. So we had the developers um, go into the sandbox environment, get familiar with their uh, the services, how to onboard their applications, how to use CloudFormation templates, all those activities. And at the same time, in parallel, we also started assessing our IT workloads. We wanted to categorize those workloads to determine which ones are suitable to go to the public cloud, which ones had to stay internally due to legal and security requirements, and then um, uh, determine what percentage can be mapped to go into AWS and in what time frame we can do it. Um, so early 2016, we started the non-production environment setup. So the environment setup requires a lot of uh, heavy lifting up front. You have to set up the accounts, the VPC design, the network connectivity, um, and the whole access to the environment. So we worked on that for the first half of 2016. And uh, by uh, fall of 2016, uh, we had the non-production environment open for business. So applications team started onboarding into AWS, not the non-prod environment. At the beginning of this year, 
we uh, partnered with AWS and worked on the operational readiness activities. So the, uh, there's an operational readiness workshop that we uh, worked on. There was an operational checklist we prepared to go through all the things to make the environment production ready. So there are security requirements that become very stringent when you have to do that. There are access requirements that are critical on who can access what in the production environment. And how do you deploy into that environment? You have to do it through automation. You can't have people doing things manually in that environment. And then we also had to enable multiple environments that we could stage through. So we had a staging environment that we had to build out and a production environment and all the different VPCs that were dedicated to the different application teams. So there was some level of application isolation as well. So we worked through that uh, through the first half of 2017. And uh, uh, we are proud to say we now have a handful of uh, applications running their production workloads in AWS. We also have over 250 applications that are running their non-prod workloads in AWS and we have many more queued up to go into production. And currently our big focus is to streamline our day two operations model. Cost optimization is key, because when you move into AWS, you know everybody has access to deploy whatever they want. We need to be able to manage cost as well. And the enforcement of security and governance is something that we are putting a, uh, you know, heavy stress on to make sure that we can uh, manage our environment safely, securely, in a compliant fashion running in AWS. Um, Again, application teams have already been using all these tools and automation in our data centers. As I said before, to jumpstart our journey into AWS, we wanted to leverage the same set of tools as much as possible going into um, AWS. So uh, the first question is, will those tools work in this environment? Will we be able to enable that seamless onboarding experience that we want for the developers? And um, you know, how do we integrate these solutions? So if you look on the left-hand side, a lot of the solutions related to server automation, orchestration, access management with Active Directory, all the network services, DNS, uh, load balancer, firewall services, and um, overall management of the tool chain. You know, the uh, Jenkins, Ansible, the whole pipeline tool chain. We wanted to make sure we had the ability as much as possible to integrate those with the AWS services that you're seeing on the right. So there were 15 major uh, service platforms that we integrated as part of this journey. And it, 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 uh, you know, where we could not um, solve for it because we did not have an integration solution, we had to build the automation uh, to be able to migrate into that platform. And this has been a huge learning experience for our uh, development teams as well as our infrastructure teams. You know, traditional infrastructure engineers are, uh, you know, system administrators, storage administrators, network admins, and so on, who worked in their individual silos. But here we had to really collaborate and work together to be able to achieve what we did in a very short time period. So I'm going to turn it over to Arshad now for the next couple of topics, and then I'll come back to cover the other two. Okay. Thanks, Richard. So. We'll go through some basics, what we call shared services. So how did we connect with AWS from our data centers? How did we solve unique problems on DNS, on Active Directory, and so on? Um, so we do have connectivity um, set up initially. That was the first challenge we had to connect with. So Verizon, um, from our data centers, we already have what we call as Verizon SCI, which is a very robust, scalable, uh, worldwide MPLS network that we run and it streamlines the process of connecting to Verizon as opposed to doing, going through just simply direct connect, which can take pretty long and it doesn't have the kind of speed and that we need, basically. So since we provide that, we, uh, we did go with 
Verizon SCI to connect our data centers that you see over there on the right to different AWS regions. If you're more interested in SCI, that is, if you go to the Verizon booth, you can get a whole detailed session tomorrow on what is Verizon SCI, how our enterprise team sells it, and then the benefits you get from it. Okay. Um, the key thing you want to get from here is this is a highly redundant in connectivity. Okay? It, we can completely lose the entire data center and the traffic readouts from our data centers into AWS, very fault tolerant, uh, <clears throat> very scalable uh, capacity planning. And with that connectivity, we still wanted to keep some level of control with on-prem firewalls to have some blast radius so that if something has gone wrong, we still have some control of traffic coming back. Um, that was a key challenge. Do you leave the firewalls wide open? Do you leave it closed? Finding that right, right balance on how, what, what you leave open and what you leave closed, that was the major challenge. We didn't want to go with a legacy mindset that everything has to be closed and only you can open specifically. We didn't want to leave it wide open. So if you're looking at connecting it and you're doing corporate firewalls, you have to plan for how you do firewalls between your data centers and AWS. Um, then obviously you start setting up your accounts and VPCs. Um, that's a very tricky decision and some, something that you have to live with for a very long time, right? You just go with one big account, five big accounts, one account or one VPC per application, and there are pros and cons of all of that. If you get into too many accounts, then we learned that it will start creating VPC sprawl and something that we cannot manage. So we went with uh, one account per line of business. And, that's our, and within an account, we, for now, we're going with one VPC. There's no need right now, but we can scale into multiple VPCs for an account if we have to. But this gives us a very good blast control radius. Uh, if one account is having an issue, we still protect on the other accounts. And then at this time, we are only doing inter internal traffic. We have not opened up internet access yet because of security reasons. We're making that a very secure solution that's coming up next year. And then we'll start taking internet traffic so when you go to www.verizon.com, that traffic from next year will also start coming directly from the internet into AWS. Okay. So now that we're connected, um, the next problem we had to go into and solve was how do you integrate DNS? Okay. So we had a very big, very complex DNS infrastructure uh, within Verizon. We have over a million IPs. We do about over a billion queries almost a day. Okay. So we had that, we had Route 53 from AWS, and we had to make a key decision on do we go with Route 53 or do we stand up our own DNS infrastructure? And for a lot of analysis, scaling and security and so on, the decision was that we, for now, will go with standing up our own DNS service on EC2 in AWS. So that, the reference architecture that you see over here, uh, we did stand up those two bottom EC2s that were, uh, and the, the top one, that those were stood up um, for name resolution. Okay. We came up with another technique that as instances come up throughout the day, we came up with a name and IP pre-named configuration that every instance that come up, it would get a unique name ahead of time. We populated the, the bottom two DNS EC2s ahead of time. So that solved a lot of, we didn't have to do it on the fly and if API calls fail and you run into, into known issues. So this way, um, if a EC2 that you see on the left is trying to look up an address of an, of an instance within, within AWS, the bottom two instances have that pre-populated. But you still always have to go to some backend system within the data centers. That's fair, we would just forward that to the, to the Verizon DNS on the right, and now we have both with connectivity. At the same time, we had to set up CloudWatch logs, and then we had to populate that through <coughs> Lambda scripts into API that we had in our DNS already. Okay, and this way, the Verizon corporate DNS is getting updated 
by the, every, every minute on any new instance coming up in AWS. So this way you have two-way connectivity, you can do a lookup on both sides, and we have, we have integrated our DNS solutions with AWS. And then came the next biggest problem you have to solve into is how do you do domain controllers within AWS? So again, you have multiple options. You can go with an AWS provider domain service, and it has its pros and cons. You can go stand up your own domain controllers, and that then you have to manage everything on your own. Um, we did want to keep things secure where we did not populate all our employee records and credentials in AWS, so our security posture was we'll run an active directory control on our own. So those triangles that you see are active directory controllers that we are running on EC2 and managing them ourselves basically at this time, right? Uh, and then from there on, we were able to create sub-OUs and have web, app, DB levels. So as instances would come up, we had to build automation which would join those machines to the domain on the fly, basically. Okay. And that was a, a pretty big challenge. We had a lot of automation, API calls, but it does work so. And then we had to set up trust between those new, the AWS controllers back to our corporate, corporate AD, which means that if I have to log into that AC2 instance, I don't use any special password. I use the same password that I use on my laptop. It's the same thing, basically. Kept it simple. And again, same thing, automation, where if an instance is being terminated, you have, again, CloudWatch logs with Lambda going back and telling them, hey, this instance has gone delete, delete all the, G the objects and clean up the GPU as we go along, basically. So another major challenge, with, with, at least with Windows systems, is you need the domain joining and, the, and keeping your domain controllers up to sync and syncing it up with your corporate AD was a challenge that we solved. So at this point, we pretty much now, sorry. Uh, the key things you want to take away from, from the shared services section is you want to think long-term, is how many accounts will you go with, how will you connect, and so on. You want to plan for high redundancy, obviously, uh, especially when, when you start doing production. Um, you do want to look into the AWS provided services, Route 53, see if it's a good fit, and if it, you can scale with it, then we can go with it. If you cannot, then you have to start looking into these kind of solutions uh, and, and, and integrate everything with it, basically. Okay, so now that we are, we've got our basic infrastructure set up, um, the next thing was security, right? Got to be secure before we do, even before we do non-production. So we started looking into DevSecOps, which most of you have heard where it is, but the concept was we've always had a security posture in Verizon that anything, any code which goes to production, even application code, it has to get scanned. So we use code, application code scanning tool that has always been our process. As we were pushing developers, to write infrastructure code, and that has been a pa our paradigm on don't just go to the AWS console and click, 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 and get your things done. You have to write CloudFormation templates, you have to automate it, use pipeline, and so on. Um, how are we going to scan it? How do we know that we, we are not going to blindly trust some, a developer who's written CloudFormation code, and how does it get scanned? So we started looking to it. Last year at reInvent, we met with a partner called Stelligent. Uh, they have an open source tool called CFNAC, CloudFormation NAC, basically. Uh, and it lets you, you put rules in it, and it lets you scan your CF CloudFormation templates, and you can say, hey, if someone is doing this combination, fail it, basically. It, it, lets, it gives you an API back that says, this does not meet our security standards. Okay? So we built a whole platform internally called the Infrastructure Certification Platform, okay? which basically you take existing CloudFormation templates, it will run into that. If, you, if it passes, the next thing it would do is it would run that 
configuration against AWS config rule status. Okay? Check that, does this meet the, the specs that we want? And finally, it would actually stand up a temporary instance of the infrastructure, do a port scan on it, and then see that if every, all our port scan rules with the, the blacklist ports that we don't want, scan that, and if everything passes, it will say, okay, this is good to go. This CloudFormation template meets all the specs. This is good to go. It gets checked in, and then people can use it. So this is a, a good schematic of the, the design we came up with. So developers check their code into a Git repository. We, they use Jenkins pipelines. It goes through the CFNAC CloudFormation scanning. It does a config rules, AWS config rules scan on it. It stands up an environment, checks all the ports are clean. If everything passes, okay, um, it will digitally sign that CloudFormation template, check it in into an, a repository, and then that's good to go. So if you're deploying that to your production environment, if we don't see the, the digital signature on that, Jenkins will stop the deployment. We will not de let that deployment, even though it's, it works, we will not let it get deployed to our production accounts, basically. So if you really want to get more um, detail, there's an hour-long session on this on Friday morning. If you're, so between Verizon, the team that built this, AWS, and Stelligent, these three companies, they're doing a one-hour talk on Friday morning. You can get a whole details on how it does, and we are constantly expanding on this platform, basically. Okay. One other area that we wanted to automate very heavily was how to do certificate management or HTTPS or your SSL certs. Okay. Um, so in the past, we have had a very manual process. We, if you see authorities like very sign of somebody in the past always, you would have to submit a ticket. Um, you, some human will get it, they will put it in, in the C authorities, they get it, and then they give it back to the application team. By the time you get your cert, you've lost two days or two weeks, something. That is just not gonna work, right? So again, same thing, we started building pipelines where as a developer, you can come in and request a cert in a portal that we built internally. It will actually make a real-time call to the cert authority get that cert issued within, within a minute, and then from there, it would actually take that, upload it to the AWS Certificate Manager, and then it's avail available for you for use in your load balancer, or don't you, actually download <laughs> available to your server, and then you can make this part of your CloudFormation template that if you have done this one time ahead of time, when you deploy your CloudFormation, not only do you scan your servers and your elastic load balancers, you, you apply your certificates right there to it in real time, basically. So this, this automation, now within three minutes, you have a fully automated pipeline to get certificates issued. We still did not uh, go with AWS provided certificates. We were able to maintain and integrate with our existing solution because we still have to keep doing this on our data center side anyways. So keeping that consistent was uh, one of the advantages we got from this, basically. Okay. So key takeaways, um, if you're not doing it already, if you're having people, your application teams go in, so I highly recommend start pushing them to do infrastructure as code. Yeah, yes, everybody's a console, but just write code and to scan code and think of the code that sends as part of their application. It's not, there's no difference between infrastructure code and application code and treat it exactly the same way and scan it the same way. And then think about end-to-end -end encryption with SSL search. And the rule we follow is everything has to get encrypted uh, with search, whether it's data in motion, data at rest, doesn't matter, we encrypt everything on the wire, on S storage, and so on, basically. Okay. okay, so that's our infrastructure and security. I'll turn over to Chitra to talk about our DevSecOps, DevOps pipeline and so on. All right, thanks, Arshad. So Arshad covered 
what it takes to set up the environment and make it secure. So now let's talk about what it takes to deploy in an automated fashion into that environment. Um, and from, with regards to deployment automation, we again wanted to leverage our pipeline, so we, uh, you know, here's a high-level deployment pipeline process that we have mapped out here and how we are in integrating that with AWS. So we have multi-state Jenkins pipelines that we created. Uh, we uh, used IAM roles to define the roles of, uh, for Ansible to deploy. Um, and then Ansible is uh, the one that's executing the CloudFormation templates and the application playbooks into the environment. And we have those uh, repositories that Arshad was just talking about, the, uh, the artifact repositories where all the code is stored. Some of the challenges we had to work through is, if a deployment fails, what do you do then? If you have to roll back a deployment successfully, what do you have to do? And how do you monitor the pipeline and make sure you have sufficient logging and information to provide to the application teams so they know where their deployment failed? Was it something they did or was it something in the uh, pipeline process or one of the services that didn't work properly? So well, I'll get to it a little later. We had to put some dashboards and some automation again. The key word is automation and to be able to do deployment at scale, that becomes absolutely critical. In a future state, we will be looking at code deploy and code pipelines, but again, for now, we went with some of the automation that we already had in place. Custom uh, lifecycle management is something I, I believe a lot of enterprises are struggling with, and in discussions with Amazon and with some of our other partners, there was really no canned solution out there. And so this is something that we had to build out a very comprehensive lifecycle management process uh, and we had to go through a very iterative process over the past several months to build that out. And um, I'll walk through some of the steps involved in here. We developed those plugins. Actually, the key developer for those plugins is right here in the room with us, Sonny. I had to call you out, Sonny. Um, and he had put uh, an enormous amount of work to make sure we could do an end-to-end -end pipeline deployment and an AMI that can be deployed from beginning to end to all the different regions with fully automated uh, mechanisms in place so the developer didn't have to touch an interface with any step along the way. Um, so the, what it takes as input, I'll just step through this, uh, the steps that uh, we have outlined here. You would get the uh, CloudFormation stack as input into the environment, and then you have the base AMI that you're creating, the encrypted base AMI, um, which is the operating system and any infrastructure components that go as part of the operating system that's specific to Verizon. And then we launch the stack to deploy an instance. Uh, and at this point, it's still just a base instance, right? The application components have not been brought in yet. And the application team then installs the application components, the application configurations, the necessary middleware components, and so on, and then creates a, uh, through their CI-CD pipeline, and then creates a customized application instance. So now it still has the base KMS key in there, right? And then this, this instance then gets deployed, the image then gets deployed to other regions, right? And once you do that, and then you're sharing it to the multiple accounts, that you have for all the, um, all the application teams. And then you have to re-encrypt that using the application-specific KMS keys. So as you can see, this is a very complicated process with a lot of automation every step of the way and a lot of error handling to make sure nothing fails along the way. And as I mentioned before, we had to iterate. Initially, it was just scanning was part of the process. Then we had to add the layers of encryption. Then we had to add the layers of how do you want to distribute it to the different regions. Everything done in a fully automated fashion. All right, so now we put it all together. If you had to bring it all together, we talked about the pipeline. We talked about how do you want to deploy a custom image 
into the different regions. How do you spin up a secure and compliance EC2 instance to run in AWS? Uh, so as you can see, there are several steps involved. You start with the core image. We decided to use our Verizon core image so we could uh, mirror it with uh, our uh, database uh, data center, our on-prem data center images, and that allows for operational consistency between our on-prem uh, instances and the uh, public cloud instances as well. Then we had to do the environmental configurations such as you know, deploying the required infrastructure components, validating the environment, tagging the necessary mandatory tagging that needs to go into place. We also had to make sure we would register with all the different enterprise services for monitoring, logging, so that we are able to operate, right, once these instances are deployed and running in production. Um, access control was a very critical item, and Arshad touched upon it a little bit already. Um, what, who gets what level of access? We have global employees, both on shore here and in uh, India, and uh, we wanted to make sure that the levels of access are you know, uh, agreeable with the global clearance that we have put in place, and who can do what in each one of these environments. So we had to spend a lot of time on that. Um, through automation again and through APIs. Um, the other part that uh, we wanted to solve for is, okay, we published an AMI. How do you keep it current? Uh, you may have heard the term rehydration, AMI rehydration. The concept here is we currently publish a base AMI every quarter. The intent is to at some point get to a monthly AMI publishing schedule, but the, uh, with all the latest patches and all the latest components that go into the AMI, uh, but then the application teams need to be fully automated and be able to pick that base AMI and go through that pr process that we just described in the previous slide. So that process is still in the works, and you know the, it depends on the application maturity level with automation to be able to take a base AMI, push it through their entire environment to all the different regions in a very short time period to meet their release requirements. So that's something that uh, still needs some work. Patching, how do you make sure the environment is patched and ready? Uh, critical patches like zero-day vulnerabilities or the recent WannaCry virus that came about. How do you make sure you are not exposed too long for it? So we did uh, come up with a patching as a service. Again, it's an automated solution that's available to provide uh, the application teams the ability to get their instances patched in place if they are not prepared to do a full rehydration. Because we would do the patching uh, as a service option while at the same time we'll update the base AMI with the latest patches to make sure everything stays current. Um, so the key takeaways from the deployment automation uh, section really is, I think, infrastructure as code. We've all heard it, uh, heard it too many times. but. Infrastructure teams automating everything and writing everything as code is what's enabled us to be able to deploy at scale. And stitching together all the different components, the enterprise uh, platforms and solutions, along with the AWS solutions, to make sure it's a seamless onboarding experience for the application teams. And the customization that we had to do with and the encryption that was required to make sure we're not exposed when we uh, deploy our systems in Amazon. All right, so uh, now that we talked about um, deploying an instance and running an instance in production, now we have to start thinking about operating an instance in production. That's where governing and monitoring and logging comes into place, right? So uh, from a governance uh, automation standpoint, again, the key again was the ability to do fully automated remediation. You don't want to just generate a few reports and send it out to the app guys and say, go fix this, right? Because you never, you don't expect to get that uh, remediated in a timely fashion. So uh, from a resource governance standpoint, we leveraged, actually overall for governance, we leveraged Lambda extensively. And uh, for example, if you had 
uh, tags missing. We have certain mandatory tags that are required for every instance that runs in AWS. If the tag is missing, the instance gets terminated automatically, and a notification goes out to the application team that their instance was terminated, and here's the reason why. Similarly, if they had instances that they stopped for whatever reason, and it was sitting there stopped for a certain period of time, those get deleted. Again, we don't want to uh, you know, add cost to our business, right? Um, buckets, F3 buckets that are not encrypted, those are deleted. Uh, again, forewarning is given to the application teams before you wipe them out. Um, snapshots that are sitting there older than a certain period of time get deleted automatically. And you, you'll be amazed to see when application teams uh, who are used to traditional operations teams managing their environment in a certain manner, this is all housekeeping that they never had to deal with, right? So now this is the ownership and the accountability falling back on the application teams to maintain good hygiene. And uh, we call it governance as a service, but it's something that we had to put in place to ensure there was remediation, it was fully automated, there was proper notifications going out to the application teams. And then the final piece of this was cost management. So you can see there, you know, all the data that's collected, it's sitting in S3 buckets. We have our financial governance teams that have access into that data. And we have, again, tagging is very critical here because tagging is done on a per application level. So for each line of business, reports are generated. And actually, they have access to their own data to see what their spend is in AWS, and there's also optimization being done on uh, from a cost perspective. So if you, you're seeing underutilized assets, uh, recommendations for right-sizing are provided. And uh, if they don't do right-sizing, the next step is to automatically right-size the environment to uh, get better cost out of the environment that we're running. All right, um, this slide here may look a little busy, so I'll quickly step through each section of it. Um, logging, again, is very critical for day two operations, uh, specifically from a security perspective, as well as for troubleshooting the environment. It's a very critical component. So we spent a lot of time building out a whole logging uh, reference architecture and framework. And uh, as you can see on the left-hand side there, the um, logging inputs that are collected from various sources, right? We have the AWS logs, cloud, uh, CloudWatch, CloudTrail uh, logs that are pulled in. Then we also have the application logs that we uh, work with the application teams and they can customize what logs they want collected. And we have the system logs, the operating system logs that are pulled in as well from Windows and Linux. So those inputs go in, again, all those are defined on who can publish what logs and who can process what logs, all done through IAM rules. And once the logs are aggregated from these various resources, we have appropriate alarming and mitigation steps that are put in place, again, through Lambda and SNS. So the um, notifications go out, and Lambda takes appropriate action based on what you want the remediation to be. And logs are stored in S3, and the access to those logs are controlled through IAM rules and tags so that we don't have application A uh, having the ability to look at the application B's logs, for example. So this architecture, again, was pretty comprehensive, working very closely with the security team and with the infrastructure logging as a service team to build it out and fully automate it and uh, provide the ability for the user to consume these uh, services um, to manage their application better once they're running in production. I mentioned earlier, you know, when you want to manage your environment, you need to have the ability to track how your builds are, uh, you know, are they failing? Are they going through successfully? What are the timings of those builds? 
Are they uh, healthy instances that are up and running and so on? So we spent uh, quite an amount of time putting together uh, micro and macro level dashboards uh, to track an instance from the beginning of the base AMI being created all the way up to the instance fully running. So the far left there, what you see is some of the proactive uh, dashboards we created. And these are health checks we put in place to monitor the health of every service and every API that goes into building an instance. And as you saw, we have so many integration points that are potentials for failure. So we had to put that in place, and it's monitored regularly, and the application teams have access to it. So they can look at it and say, OK, this particular API to DNS is not healthy. And before it, the DNS team is already looking into it and uh, taking corrective action on it, for example. And then we built uh, some reactive dashboards in Splunk. This is the, you know, the build health check dashboards to show in real time how, much it, how long a build takes. Is it a successful build? Um, are there tr and then the far right is trends and patterns for the build. So you can uh, monitor and see uh, are there certain things that are routinely failing and how can we make the build automation more um, error, you know, error, less error prone and more healthy? And how can we do better error handling and better notification back to the application teams so that they know that they, they can manage this themselves? Again, the theme behind this is fully automated making the developer self-sufficient in the tools we are providing to them. Here's a sample um, dashboard we put together uh, that uh, you know, the teams use on a regular basis. You can see it shows you how many instances were initiated per day, uh, you know, how many completed successfully, what were some of the average times on a particular build, if it's a Windows build or a Linux build, uh, you know, what are the uh, you know, uh, failed builds, what's the failure rate, what are the reasons the builds failed, and you can drill down into a lot of detail with this and enhance the automation based on it. And you've seen trends where a lot of, a lot of times, um, if you can't pinpoint the build failure reasons, the application teams you know, could have the tendency to throw their arms up and say something in the infrastructure failed, right? It could be in, inappropriate tags or you know, not uh, encrypting, whatever the case may be, right? So th the, these dashboards have been a savior for the application teams. So some of the key takeaways from a governance and monitoring standpoint, Lambda saves the day. <laughs> I think uh, that's a given. Uh, if you haven't started uh, you know, leveraging Lambda, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And we are going to continue to look at how to uh, enhance our automation and enhance the remediation steps via Lambda. And providing the dashboards and the tools to the developers so they can manage their own environments without having to rely on external resources. And that's the whole DevOps full stack model we want to get to anyway. And some application teams are at a very high level of maturity there and others are not. We want to enable them through these tools and automation to be able to get to that state um, going forward. I'm going to turn it over to Arshad to wrap up the session with database. Thanks, Richard. So now that we got your base infrastructure, security, and governance in place, right? So then obviously the next big thing is how do you start moving your applications? The whole application movement depends on the type of application, how much legacy footprint you have, and so on. But what we started looking into is one of the key challenges was databases, right? We, it, there was just no um, easy answer to everything. So we started off it. we have obviously all kinds of different products and databases and sizes and so on. Um, we first looked at how do we approach this? What's your strategy, right? Obviously, long term, what we want to do is we want to take all our existing applications and in the long run, modernize our stack, make it more cloud native, 
um, and so on and so forth. That's where, but we know it, it takes time. There's a lot of coding and <coughs> rewrite that you have to do. So, and while you do that, um, do you leverage database as a service? Do you manage your own databases? Those were the kind of decisions that you have to look into, right? Um, and what we went with was more of a lift and evolve. So what that basically means is, um, for now, applications that are just not easy to rewrite, lift and shift, and that's fine. Some greenfield applications we are rewriting from scratch, and it's better they're coming in clean as a cloud native. But we are evolving and developing our database strategy as, as we go along. And as far as using something like RDS, Aurora, versus should you run your own EC2 and run your own databases on top of it, honestly, there is no right or wrong answer. It depends on your scenario, depends on maturity for database teams. Um, there's pros and cons on both sides, basically. Okay, there is there is limitations um, on both ends. If you go with <coughs> managing your own databases, that's good. But then you have the headache of how do you, like you just said, you have we have to rehydrate databases, right? So how do you rehydrate? So those are challenges. How do you back them up? If you go with RDS and Aurora, that's good. You got a lot of out-of-the-box solutions, but there are still certain gaps that you have to go through. How do you do AD integration with, with RDS? That's still a gap. How do you do SSIS integration? So on those, those challenges start coming in. So we had technical challenges, process challenges, and then whichever way you go, you always still will have to come back and integrate your database solution in AWS with your data center databases, because you're not going to cut over a big 10 terabyte database in one night. There will be a phase migration, so during that phase, you have to replicate back and forth, there are feeds coming in and out, so that has to be kept in mind as you start putting your database workloads in there. Um, so specifically on DP rehydration, right? It's easy on web servers. If you have a bunch of web servers and you have to move to a new EC2 instance with a new base AMI that came out every quarter, not a big deal, you bring up a new bunch of web servers, automate your application deployment, add it to a load balancer, and you're done. Databases, how do you do How do you do that? So we started building automation pipelines where you can take <coughs> an storage that you can detach, ENIs that you can detach, and they can move it, a, a DB instance, from running one running machine to another. Right? Uh, and we started building some models, how to automate this whole thing. So again, automation to the point where even DBAs, now we have DBAs who traditionally were just managing databases are now running Jenkins pipelines and standing up their own infrastructure and moving from instance to instance on a click of a button. So we've turned our, our DBAs into automation engineers, basically, along with their other job. So database is going to be your application movement, right, and rewrite it. refactoring is one angle. The database aspect of it um, is something you'll definitely have to keep a very good close eye on, both long-term and short-term. Um, the other specific pattern that we had to look into, because we do have a lot of Microsoft SQL databases, um, how do you stand it up, especially when it comes to HA and domain, domain join and everything, right? So where we started with our Microsoft footprint was we didn't want to have 20 different DBAs standing up Microsoft SQL clusters on their own in 20 different ways. So we came up with a standard way where you have one enterprise AMI with SQL installed on it that every week brings it up in one way with one set of settings and one set of security. So that's where we started. The same pipeline that we talked about, that you talked about, we can use that not just for web servers, but also for standing up your database instances through, through the pipeline. Okay. Once you've got that, those are the two blue boxes. You attach a bunch of storage, you have an ENI. So that you, at least now you have two independent 
EC2 instances with SQL installed running by themselves. And the next automation that we did was how do you cluster them in, in AWS? So basically, the same domain control that we talked about, running through pipeline, setting up a cluster configuration, and joining these databases to that cluster, the SQL cl clustering. And at that point, you have a fully working, one-click solution where you can stand up a SQL cluster, domain joined, and it, you can do it repeatedly. So a DBA could stand this up, a fully working SQL cluster, on your own, on one click of a button, basically. This has been one of the key challenges. So if, for those teams that did not want to go with a out-of-the-box RDS solution, this was another automated solution that we had to come up with. And this is something that's helped a lot on, on our Microsoft side. Okay. So to wrap it up, key takeaways, um, you have to revamp your database process. DBAs have to transform. They have to start thinking outside of being DBAs. They have to do much more than that. They have to adopt new ways. And your entire application process along with databases has to go through a whole specific process, how you uh, refactor applications. And in, uh, like I said, in the long term, your goal should always be to modernize your stack. And for, for there, where do you do database modernization? Where do you do your application modernization? Bring it all together and move as much into the public cloud. Okay. With that, I think that's the last slide. I'll, uh, we, have, I'll, we have some people at Verizon at the Verizon booth. If you want to come by and ask a question, we can op we'll open up to QA. Um, next step. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, so, so just to wrap up, on next steps, we have three major things coming up in the next year. We are starting with opening up internet access for our workload. So we do not have, at this time, we're not taking any internet traffic, but Applications like Verizon.com will start coming up. That's a major goal for us for next year. Um, we're looking at containers heavily and how to start moving container workloads. Okay. Um, <clears throat> as well as um, other platforms that we're doing, basically all our day two operations and readiness, so on, how do we alert on a systems and monitoring. That's one of the key goals as we get ready for uh, more heavy workloads at production. So happy to take questions from the audience. Uh, if you want, you can just ask the question from where you are. We will repeat the question, or you can use the mic here so that everybody can hear your question. Sure, go for it, sir. So first correction, we have a lot more than 250 applications. <laughs> we just migrated 250 into AWS so far. All right, we have thousands of applications uh, managed. And yes, application development teams have the ability to uh, initiate EC2 instances. But the key is automation. They have to go through the pipeline. We started when we were experimenting with it. They were given full console access. They could go click all the different buttons to build and set up an instance. But the key is if you have to go into production, you have to start with non-prod, work through the automation, and build it through the pipeline so there's no human interaction or touch involved to deploy it into production. And the goal is for the developers to be able to manage their own environments, stand it up, deploy it, manage it on their own. But yet, the short answer is every, every developer in, in IT has the ability to launch as many instances as they want. Yeah, so let, let me repeat the question. So the question is, how do you control, do blast-level control? Um, and if you remember the, f the first section we talked about, how do you set up accounts, and how do you do that? 
So, so yes, right now within each line of business, yes, we, we did not want to go where every application team has their own account, and that, so that if they make, make a mistake, it's only impact that application. That's too many accounts. So we did group chunks of applications in different accounts, and yes, there is a risk that do that, but it's been two years, and we have not had any problems. And basically. managing it through roles. And managing it through roles, and there, there's a role. And, and then so far, there are about, I would say, 200 or so applications within each account, and they are, they are sharing each other, they're all the same, and they do not overstep on each other, basically, right now. Yes? Are you talking about load testing and such? So, so the question that are we putting in applications in a pre-prod environment before they go into production? Yes. They, yes. Yes. So there is a non-prod environment. There is a staging, and then there's a production environment. So the application teams do get an opportunity to test out their application. If it's uh, specifically related to load testing and performance, they have a lot of those measures. They work with the network teams and the 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 other the infrastructure teams to make sure they are able to handle the load. The, the staging environment that we have is a replica, a mini replica of production. of production. It runs on the exact same circuits that goes to production, same firewalls, same rules, same, same policies and everything. So that's where they shake out their entire performance, uh, security rules and everything before they take it to production. Yes? So let me make sure I get the question. Wait, yeah, so I got the question. Yeah. So the question was, how is your custom AMI process working out for you? Yep. Are you able to manage it on the scale? Yes. Um, are there any challenges? What are you looking to do with it in future? Okay. I, I think one of the challenges, obviously, is initially when we were working through this, application teams, as they are learning through this process, they were building hundreds and thousands of their custom AMIs trying to tweak it, right? So the management of those AMIs from a governance standpoint and a security standpoint was a huge challenge. So when we had our initial non-prod environment, we had to quickly start establishing those remediation rules to say these are really outdated AMIs or non-compliant AMIs, you have to kill them. So they, they are not part of the, uh, the environment uh, causing concern. But once they get to the fully automated state, and once the management from a governance standpoint kicks in, it's, it is manageable at scale. So, so, so let me give, I'll give you a specific example, right? So about a year and a half ago, an application team would stand up an instance, they would log into the instance, they would manually install whatever software, get the app work, right. and they would manually cut an AMI from it, and that was a custom AMI. And if we would go to them after three months and say, hey, you need to do it, oh, it's a lot of work, I cannot do this manually. That was a year and a half ago, right? Today, with that whole pipeline that you saw, since teams have moved to it, now most teams are getting to the point where, okay, we have another base operating system only, they plug that into the first step that you saw, in about an hour, they have a new custom AMI, it's just one click for them, and that maturity started coming in now, basically. And also, another thing to point out is if they don't have that level of maturity, we don't let them go into production. So that's a gating factor there. So to ensure that they have to have that full automation, they have to be uh, fully compliant before they can go into production. Good question. That was a good question. Yeah, so the question is, do we use AWS preferred services or migration programs? Right? Yeah. 
yes, so we, we have engaged with AWS Premise Services a lot more on the infrastructure design, okay? more for security. Uh, but for application migration, we have done something internally, and we have used a couple of other partners for that, but not directly for commercial services. Right. It's just for the initial setup and the configuration. We partnered very heavily, especially through the operational readiness workshops, to yeah. make sure that we were making making it through that checklist to make sure we didn't, uh, you know, forget something to get ready for production. But as Arshad said, yeah. uh, for the migration practice, there have been a lot of discussions to engage partners, yeah. but we are not leveraging PS for it. And to the first part, yes, uh, Verizon does leverage the migration acceleration as well. Actually, the first app that went live in uh, AWS was a fully microservices-based application. So those seem to have a faster acceleration rate to move in there. But as we know, you know we have a lot of legacy applications uh, that uh, will take time and resources and money. Uh, so um, going into a fully microservices-based model or uh, to wait for that to happen is not necessarily a you know, long-term success, so we are doing a lot of lift and shift. And that's what we did when we did the assessment of the applications initially, to make sure we had a good understanding of what type of application can go in what uh, model they can go. And there was a topic by AWS um, uh, Professional Services right. categorizing into those six different categories. Yep. You know, are you going to retire? Are you going to replatform? Are you going to re-engineer? You know, so, so we had to go through that assessment also, and that's still ongoing. There was one question there in the back of the room. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So, so the first couple of applications that migrated into the environment, we, we call it the N plus one model. So we still have their uh, data center environments still available to fall back to. Because again, it's a learning experience, right? We didn't want to fully cut over 100% and then not have figured out all those other steps. So from a backup and recovery standpoint, there are uh, you know, backup as a service offerings that we are currently looking at. That is part of our roadmap to provide a consistent model. In non-prod, generally, that's not a big concern, but in production, we have so, to. So what we are doing in non-prod is we are using multiple regions. Right. So the, the non-prod teams, if, if, if they lose something, they, still, they can go back to another region and pretty easily recover. For production, they do have multiple regions, but right now we are keeping an on-prem copy, basically. For the recovery, and at some point that goes away, and then we'll be only using multi-region. And also. they use snapshots as well. Yeah. Yes. So we have a whole uh, training and learning program, retooling program that we initiated. Um, I believe there was a talk here about that as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, and there were very specific goals set up across IT uh, for the development teams and the uh, production support or operations and DevOps teams and the infrastructure teams to go through the certification program. Uh, and uh, you know, a certain percentage of every organization had to go through it. And it's become a very competitive 
program across the business. So it's each uh, line of business um, CIO competing with the other saying, I have 30% of my organization certified. And that's really been very motivating. And uh, you know, teams are seeing the value in uh, you know, some of the early adopters and how quickly they're able to migrate. And so uh, there's a lot of knowledge sharing also that goes on. And this is something that I uh, forgot to mention earlier. We have weekly forums. We call it the public cloud forum calls that we've established, where um, it started off as very small groups of people coming in, uh, you know, sharing their learnings and asking questions. It's expanded tremendously. And we have uh, collaboration forums that are in place where if people have created a, you know, a particular piece of code, it's published out there. And it's all about the, you know, that whole crowdsourcing model where there's a lot of engagement across yeah, the teams. So, so yeah, that's the two teams you're going running is uh, you know, application pattern sharing, basically. So if one team does it, there's very good sharing between the other several hundred teams. They can all take the, the on those forums. For, for training purposes, we do, have, we do run internal boot camps. So there are, these true. are you know, for several weeks where you have, we call it a cloud captain one or two people in a location that will bring about 20 people who have already done the certification. They will handhold them, they run through multiple modules, they train them, they prep the exam, and this whole batch goes in and takes it. And we are about to get to a very good chunk where people are certified across each organization. And I do want to also talk about one more thing. I saw Ross and remembered it. <laughs> we have our dojos that we've established too to help application teams come and learn their experiences through these dojos. And we have those in different cities, and that's another place where we're getting the learnings, uh, you know, and the adoption happening very quickly. So it's a hands-on learning center that you go to location and, and spend time and learn over there, basically, internally. So there was one question there. Yes. So. The question was, are you sharing the VPC or not? So uh, in Verizon's design, they have one account per line of business. And in that account, they have one VPC right now. But they have different VPCs, different accounts for non-prod and production. Yes. Yeah. Um, did you consider, I think the question is around, uh, what were the considerations for separating the VPCs? Would that be the right question? Okay. Yeah, so it it's, again goes back to blast radius control, basically, right? So non-prod staging production, that's one control. Between line of businesses, that's another vertical control, basically. And if we did run into some limit issues, basically, so you can only get up to a certain, your, your subnet getting max. Once you build the VPC, you can add, not add more subnets. So we actually had to move what we started with the non-production last year. We maxed it out by uh, January this year, and we had to build a brand new production and move all these apps from one set of non-prod accounts to another set of non-prod accounts. So this, this had more scalability. So we, we are getting to the point where now moving applications from one account to another, if it is automated, should not be a problem. So tomorrow, if you take 100 applications in one account and say you have 50 and you have 50, it should not be a problem, basically. And technically, from the VPC design perspective, you can have, theoretically, all your applications, all lines of businesses in one VPC, right? Yeah. Uh, you can have like up to 65,000 IP addresses in a VPC. Now you have the ability of extending the VPCs. We didn't have that before. Yeah. Uh, so you can have all of that in one VPC and one account. But when it comes to designing for security and designing for blast control and figuring out, well, which set of developers should have access to which applications, then it usually makes sense to separate out uh, 
your infrastructure in multiple AWS accounts and across multiple VPCs. So that's the balancing yeah. act that, that Arshad and Chitra no. talked about earlier, um, that you have to really decide how far you want to go with that design. Mm -hmm. Do you want hundreds and thousands of accounts, hundreds and thousands of VPCs, which comes with its own management overload, or you want fewer? And they, they settled on yeah. uh, one account per line of business and different accounts for uh, production. Yeah, but, but the one thing we do well. is we keep all the non-production accounts for everyone exactly the same. We don't pick and choose, okay, you get these extra privileges, or you get, because it becomes ex very difficult to manage. So if it's non-production, it's one set of security rules and governance. If it's production, it's much tighter, but they're all the same. So tomorrow, if you create 10 other line of businesses, they'll, like, they'll follow exactly the same policy. It's, that keeps it very easy to manage it at scale, basically. Yes, go ahead. So um, I'm representing also Telco, and uh, we see that... Uh, could you, sorry, could you, you use the, the mic? mic? Sorry. Yeah. So I'm working also for a Telco, and we see that there is a... Uh, traditional to use our own data centers. So did you f see any resistance from your organization to use Verizon own data centers or was there an organization buy-in already to go to AVS? That's a very good question and the short answer is yes. There's always resistance. It is, it is a culture change and you have to be prepared for it. And once you have a little bit of momentum, people start coming on board. And now it's almost like people are jumping on, say, why am I not learning this technology? Why am I not getting certified? And why can't I take my app to production? So now we have apps lining up. I want to put my workload in production. And yes, there's some minimum security requirement they're having transmitted. But now I think we're past the culture part that why do I have to leave my data center? We have past that now, basically. Great. Yes, sure. For all, all of IT, yes. Yes. For, so for IT, we have one pillar of security. We have one governance pillar, one engineering pillar, and then one. Then all the uh, all the lines of business have their you know their DevOps uh, teams yeah. that would manage their development and their their uh, production support function. Yes. To wrap Good. it up. Yep. So we're happy to take more questions. I think we need to get off the stage. But thanks yeah. for coming. Thanks for attending this. Uh, hope you have a good week. Thank you. Thanks.